Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, June the 3rd, 2023. It is currently 3.37 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, it's Saturday. I don't know what that means for you, but for me, it means sermon prep. That's what it means. I'm sitting here working on my sermons for tomorrow, and tomorrow's all going to be about Jeremiah chapter 2. So I'm working on you know three hours of teaching. How am I going to break down Jeremiah chapter 2 into three hours of teaching? What is that going to look like? Where do I start? Where do I end for the first hour? Where do I start and end for the second hour? Where do I start and end for the third hour? So it's all about sermon prep. And in the middle of that sermon prep, I was like, well, you know, let me take a break and let me do a live broadcast. And what should I do a live broadcast about? So I had kind of a question that kind of relates to how maybe I approached the first hour of Jeremiah uh, chapter two. So I was going to do a today's focus about that, but I'm like, it's 3.38 p.m. I don't know. Is it? Is I guess it doesn't really matter when I do a today's focus, but uh, maybe not. I'm like, well, what do I do? And I'm like, oh, I remember. I remember what we should talk about. Since I'm doing sermon prep, let's talk about the greatest sermon ever preached. What was the greatest sermon ever preached? Come on. What was the greatest one ever preached? Hands down, the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, this one, not only is it called the greatest sermon ever preached, it's also the sermon that is... How can we say it? The most misinterpreted sermon ever preached. What What is the greatest sermon ever preached, but obviously no one understands it. And if no one understands it, then is it the greatest sermon ever preached? But do I dare say it's not the greatest sermon ever? Could I say it's the greatest sermon due to the fact that no one understands it? Like, I don't know how I classify this, but everyone will say it's the greatest sermon. But I find it funny that while everyone's like, this is the greatest sermon and you're like, oh, really? Tell me what it means. And then when they start trying to give you their interpretation or what we're supposed to do with it, I always look at them going, well, for such a great sermon, it is so greatly misunderstood. What sermon am I referring to? Well, if you have a Bible, you know where the sermon is, right? It's right there in Matthew. It covers Matthew chapter 5. It covers Matthew chapter 6. It covers Matthew chapter 7, and it and, and at the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, we read there these words, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. That's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. This sermon is often referred to as, everyone knows, the Sermon on the Mount, right? And the reason why, look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, the Sermon on the Mount. Now, on the Sermons 2.0 app and the Church 1 app, you can find our series 
on the Sermon on the Mount, where we cover a lot of the controversies and issues and all the different ways people try to interpret this sermon. And to me, it's once again, it's just one of those disheartening, discouraging realities of Christianity. But if you're not aware of this, there's very little agreement within the Christian world on exactly how we are to interpret this sermon. Everyone wants to say it's the greatest sermon because Jesus preached it, right? So everyone's like, the greatest sermon ever preached was preached by Jesus. We need to have preachers who will preach like Jesus. Well, he preached a sermon, and for 2,000 years... (laughs) I guess no one can quite figure out what to do with it or how to understand it or what to make of it. Now, some people will think it's very simple. When I was a young Christian, I thought it was very simple and very straightforward. Then as I begin to learn and grow and read and study and and then, you know, one school after another, this seminary, this Bible college, the more education I pursued, the more I begin to realize, <laughs> well, I guess it may be the greatest sermon But man, alive, wouldn't it be great if we could have one interpretation of it? Wouldn't it be great? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is supposedly leading us into all truth, which obviously, you know, I reject that concept. The Holy Spirit led the writers of the New Testament into all truth. But uh, but if you believe the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, just a Sermon on the Mount alone is good evidence against that argument, right? Because if the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, how come we can't agree on how to understand the Sermon on the Mount? Now, some people interpret the Sermon on the Mount, if you're not aware of this, as a sermon that you use to prove if someone is saved. If your rep, this is how it's typically preached. If your repentance is genuine, if you are a true believer, you will be obeying the Sermon on the Mount. They give it as a test of one's salvation. Well, anyone who reads the Sermon on the Mount and even is remotely honest with themselves would immediately go, well, then no one is saved. I mean, even in the Sermon on the Mount, we read, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is, imper- is perfect. That should be the end of that interpretation, right? That should be the end of that. And you would think that would be the end of that interpretation. So some believe that it's a proof of one's salvation. Others uh, preach it as this, now that you are a Christian, this is how you are to live and you can do it. Now that you're saved, you can obey. If you're not saved, you can't obey the Sermon on the Mount, but if you are, you can. Now they will always try to backpedal a little bit and say, you can, but you never will, but they never explain why we never will if we supposedly can. It's really convoluted and complicated. So it either proves you're saved or it's a, it's the... It's the morality that you can keep, but we never really keep it, but you actually can't. All right. Or third, Matthew chapter five through seven is Jesus giving us the law. He's giving us the law and it reveals our failure. It reveals our inability and that we cannot keep it. We will never keep it. Unsaved or saved, we will never keep it. We will never come close. We will always be condemned by it. But the one who preached it kept it. And by my faith in Jesus Christ, his obedience to it is imputed to my account. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore it. Doesn't mean we we say, well, we don't need to worry about it. It just means that we realize it will always show us our failures. It will always show us that we come short. We should pursue righteousness, absolutely. 
But we have to realize <laughs> we're going to fall short of it over and over and over again. So I, I believe that that's the correct interpretation. It is law and it shows us our inability, but the one who preached it is the one who kept it. And by faith in him, his obedience to it is imputed to my account. I now try positionally. I'm always obedient to it. Practically, I always fall short of it, but it tells me what I am to be constantly pursuing. That to me is a much better approach. And the only one that I think makes any sense theologically and biblically. But the disagreement will continue to rage on. So I don't know, was it about a week ago, two weeks ago, I got a notification of a new uh, podcast episode from the Bible Study Hour with the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce from 10th Presbyterian Church. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce was a major influence uh, on me early in my Christian life. The first book I've told the story a million times. I was a brand new Christian. I'm a teenager. I go to the Bible bookstore, Abilene, Texas, Butternut Street. I walk in. I'm looking around like, what is this place? I've never been into a Christian bookstore. Where do I start? I'm a teenager. Do I go to the youth section? I'm just completely like, you know, baffled, looking around, not knowing what to do. And this older gentleman walks up to me and says, can I help you? I'm like, well, I'm a new Christian. So I think that I'm supposed to go to a Christian bookstore. Like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And he's like, okay, well, we need to get you a good book. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. And I thought he's going to take me to the teen section. He's like, we're not going to the teen section. We don't need that. He takes me to systematic theology. I think it's called the, uh, the foundations of the Christian life. I think it's what it's called or the fundamentals of the Christian life by Dr. James Montgomery Boyce from 10th Presbyterian Church. It's like 300 pages. He's like, this is what you need. And I took it home and started devouring it as a brand new Christian. And and years later, like 20 something years later, I got to thank that man for that book. And so um, for, for pointing that book out. So it was really cool. All those years later, I was in a church and that man was there and I got to thank him for it. So uh, he has, James Montgomery Boyce had a major impact on my Christian life. So, well, guess what? On about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on their program called the the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. Again, these are obviously older sermons since he has now passed. They did one called The Greatest Sermon because they were beginning to play his sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. So guess what I did? I'm like, I downloaded it and I'm like, at some point we'll do an episode where we review it, critique it, analyze it and see how he approached it. I don't remember exactly his approach, but we will see which approach he takes. All right. I don't, I don't remember exactly. I did have his commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount or on Matthew, but though I haven't looked at them probably 20 years. Okay. I still have, um, I still have a lot of uh, James Montgomery Boyce's books, but, um, yeah, it's been a long time since I looked at what he had to say about the Sermon on the Mount. But let's let's go back and let's see. You ready? Sounds like a fun a fun thing to do on this Saturday afternoon, June the 3rd. I think so. Let's do this. Matthew chapter 5. Have it open in your Bibles. And uh, let's see which direction he goes. Here we go. The Sermon on the Mount by Jesus Christ contains many principles about how to live. Do you know if these principles apply to you? Could you keep them, even if you wanted to? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has been misinterpreted and misunderstood by every generation. 
It seems to hang somewhere between Old Testament teaching and New Testament grace. This famous discourse has been interpreted as a mere set of ethics, as a basis for legalism within the church, yet it's neither of those things. Now, I, I do love the fact that even they acknowledge it's been, it's been misinterpreted by every generation. Like, just try to wrap your mind around that. Th- Matthew 5, 6, and 7. One section of scripture has been misinterpreted by every generation of Christians. If you, if you even believe for a second that the Holy Spirit's supposedly leading us into all truth, you should immediately stop and go, I got to rethink my position. Because we, we would be able to figure it out after 2,000 years, you think we would have it figured out. Now, of course, they're going to say, they're going to give us what they think is the right interpretation. I'm going to give you what I think is the right interpretation. And what, how much money you want to put down? How much money do you have? All right. I'm not calling for actual gambling, but okay. For illustration's sake, how much money would you put down that Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and myself that were there, that even we're not going to be in agreement that even in this episode that I'm going to give you their interpretation. I'll give you my, if you, if you got on the sermons 2.0 app and just looked up sermons on the sermon on the Mount, I don't even know how many there are. There's probably a lot, hundreds, if not thousands, guess what? I bet you, you're going to find a lot of disagreement. And that, that's just so frustrating, right? But here is their intro. Let's go back. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. Jesus' purpose in preaching his greatest sermon was not to bind believers to a set of legalistic rules, but to present principles to live by for those who have experienced a life transformed by Christ. Join Dr. Boyce as he presents an overview of Christ's sermon and reveals the fallacies and truths about the greatest message ever preached. Okay, I'm not going to say anything there. You can just draw your own conclusions, but they call it the greatest message ever preached. The greatest message ever preached. All right. I, I, I just, I, I just, I just struggle. If it's the greatest message ever preached, but no, every generation misinterprets it. Is, is the greatness of a message? What determines the greatness of a message? Is it because the one who preached it? So therefore, it's just by default great because clearly no one seems to be able to understand it. So I, I, I mean, I don't know. You, it's not really a debate worth having. I just find it interesting that we always say that, but then we acknowledge, but nobody gets it. Today, I should like to begin a study of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the fifth, sixth, and seventh chapters of Matthew's Gospel. I want to talk about why we should study it. Before we begin, however, I think we need to recognize that in dealing with the Sermon on the Mount, we're dealing with the need for a new life, a new birth, rather than with a legalistic system of morality. And this is true not only of the Sermon on the Mount, but of the New Testament generally. Now, I'm not saying this is where he is going, but it is common within the evangelical world 
It is common within the Christian world that basically it's like, hey, if you're not saved, you can't do this, 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 and this. But once you become saved, dun, dun, da, da, superhuman. You can love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You can love your neighbor as yourself. You, uh, you can be as holy as God is holy. You can be perfect as your heavenly father is imperfect because now you are a Christian. You can do it. But then we, after we preach it that way, then we'll say, but, 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 however, see the small print. I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly. I mean, you're still going to sin. Well, wait a minute. You just said I could. So it's like on one, on one side of our mouth, we're like, you can do it. On the other side, we kind of just whisper. I mean, I mean, you can't do it perfectly. I mean, you're, you're still going to sin. Well, if I'm still going to sin, but supposedly I have supernatural ability to now keep the law of God. Well, is there then a limit to the power which I have been given? And how much disobedience to the law before it really demonstrates I can't do it? Like, I mean, if I can't do it perfectly, because doesn't God's law demand perfect, complete, exact, entire, internal and external obedience? So if I'm, if I'm, if I, how many times do I fall short before at some point you're like, you know what, really, you can't do it. But are you just saying that becoming a Christian just gives me the ability to keep it 50% more? Like, like, I mean, it's just, it's such just a weird, like Christians do this weird, like back and forth. You can do it. I mean, you can't really do it. I mean, but you can't. I mean, you really can't. I mean, you can do it, but you can't do it perfectly. So you're still going to sin, but, but you can do it. So which is it? Can I or can't I? Almost every Christian puts a limit to, well, you can't do it perfectly, meaning that whatever power supposedly I've been given doesn't get me to perfection, but it just gets me to better. But is that only better externally or is it better internally? Because a lot of people may may obey some of this externally, but you have no idea how many people are sitting in the pew every Sunday who is who knows how much of the Sermon of the Mount they have violated internally over the last 72 hours. But I'm not saying that's the direction he's going, but, you know, it's like if you get the new birth, you can do it. You know the difference between a new life and a law, I'm sure, and you also can understand why the first is far more important. For instance, there's a strong sense of law and brotherhood among the members of the mafia, and there's even a tendency to work within the letter of the laws of a country where possible. In some respects, a member of the mafia is probably more conscious of the law than the average citizen. Yet, no one who is not a criminal would endorse the mafia because of its sense of law, or even, as is sometimes the case, because the members of the mafia are able to practice crime within the letter of the country's laws. The life of the criminal is wrong. What is needed is a new way of life, a life in which the individual member is lifted out of the context of crime entirely and has given new loyalties and new motivations for his conduct. Right conduct arises from a right heart. And this means that proper 
Christian conduct can only follow from a life that has been transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is, this is a, a, another debate within the world of Christianity, because some say when you became a Christian, you received a brand new heart. Well, does that mean the old nature is gone? Now, some people say you get a new heart, but you still have the old nature. So the heart is new, but the nature is the same. But wasn't the heart connected to the name? So is it? So when you, when you become, when you're, before you're saved, you have a corrupt heart and a corrupt nature. But when you become saved, now you have a good heart, but still a corrupt nature? Or do you still have a corrupt heart and a corrupt nature? Is it the heart and the nature that fights? And how are these separate? How is the heart and the nature separate? Now, some people basically go with the idea of a complete eradication of the old nature. Well, if the old nature is eradicated and you have a new heart, or that's one and the same, the heart and the nature are the same, then if that is completely gone and eradicated, then you should call for Christian perfectionism. So I, I think this is just like, it, it almost, a lot of times when you go the Sermon on the Mount, this is how it's set up. Hey, these laws cannot be kept without the supernatural transformation. Now that you've had the supernatural transformation, then the idea is you can do it. But what we typically say is you can't do it without the supernatural transformation. But if you've been spiritually transformed, you can do it. Okay, dramatic pause. However, you can't do it perfectly. Well, wait a minute. I just thought you said I could do it. I mean, we said you could do it, but we don't mean you can actually do it. So can I or can't I? Well, I mean, you can do better. So I'm saved to be given the ability to do better, but I can't do it. That would still put me, you do realize, without perfect obedience to the Sermon on the Mount, I would be then in complete disobedience (laughs) because God's law demands Perfect, complete, exact, entire, internal and external, perpetual obedience. This truth is basic to all of Christ's teachings. It's been a failure to see this truth that has led to nearly all of the great misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount was true of the way the Sermon on the Mount was handled by the leaders of the social gospel movement, which flourished at the beginning of this century. Under the leadership of such men as Washington Gladden and Walter Rauschenbusch, the social gospel movement focused the church's attention upon the corporate aspects of 20th century life and upon the need for achieving social justice. In this crusade, the Sermon on the Mount was regarded uh, something like the battle plan of the churches. And the phrase, the kingdom of God, was erected uh, as a banner. All that was needed for the realization of Christ's kingdom, they argued, was a widespread understanding of the Sermon on the Mount and its vigorous application to our culture. Now, Now, in some ways, what's bizarre in 2023 is... 
conservative Christians scream against social justice and scream against a social justice gospel, but then they turn around and then try to impose basically Sermon on the Mount ethics, Sermon on the Mount morality upon the lost world. So it's like, we're not for the social gospel, but we are going to impose a Christian morality upon everyone else. It's So is that not just a different kind of a social gospel? It's just a conservative social guy. It, it's really weird how things has, we've kind of gone full circle. All right, but let, let's see where else he takes this. Must be said in all favor of the leaders of this movement that they were aware of the crying social needs of our society at a time when the defense of the working man or the poor man was not popular. And they're Efforts have certainly borne fruit in the gradually awakening social conscience of the Christian churches today. But for all their virtues, the social gospel movement to which they gave birth had one great and ultimately fatal defect. It was aware of Christ's ethic, but it tried to preach the ethic to those who were not possessed of Christ's life. Consequently, the attempt to actualize Christ's standard of human conduct universally was doomed to disheartening failure. And amen. Whenever you preach a social gospel of any kind, it is doomed to failure. If you're like social justice and whatever you're trying to preach to the culture to get them to live right, and you're going to try to change laws, do this, it's doomed to failure because you're trying to preach a biblical Christian law to the unregenerate. It will not work. But let me make it so. So look, I don't care if it's the liberal side or the conservative side. To me, it's the same form of social. It's the same social gospel. I know. Oh, the people conservative will tell me, no, 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 we do not preach, preach a social gospel. We preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you want to boycott and ban and silence and, and impose your Christian ethic on the unregenerate. It's never going to work. You will never change the hearts of people that way. So it's just weird that it's like almost the conservative side now. It's like there was the liberal side. It was like, we're going to go social gospel. And the conservative side condemned the liberal side. Now it's the conservative. They don't call it a social gospel, but it's the same concept. We're going to take the biblical ethic, the biblical law, and we're going to impose it on lost people. We want them to live. This is the way the laws should work. We want a Christian ethic imposed on everyone. It's doomed to failure. So whether it's coming from the left or whether it's coming from the right, the only way to, the Christian method should be to preach the gospel and call people to faith in Jesus Christ. Because I, I, I guess what? To me, whether it's from the liberal side or from the conservative side, both sides seems to forget this. The law of God only condemns. It incites rebellion. It condemns. It exposes we can, I, I, I do not know how hard I have to preach this. You cannot keep it. You can't keep it lost. You can't keep it saved. You can't keep God's law. It is impossible. It is a standard which only condemns you. It only exposes your limitations and your failure because whether you're saved or unsaved, you still have a sinful nature. 
And God's law demands a, a level of perfection, which no one can achieve. So we're in a perpetual state of disobedience to God's law. Well, Christians want to, run, want to run around and impose law on the lost. We're simply within our own selves, violating the very law in some way, shape, or form that we're trying to impose on others. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians, who are we to judge those outside? We got to look to our own self. We got to look to what we're doing in the church. We've got enough of our own problems. All right, let's continue. Shaken by the hard reality of two world wars, this form of social gospel movement quickly became outmoded. The churches now turn to wealth, mass movements, and politics to affect by force what they cannot affect by merely moralistic preaching. See, now there you go. They did. They used to try to accomplish it through moral moralism. Now we try to accomplish it by movements, politics, and by force. It's the same thing. One was like, we're going to preach moralism and then we'll get everyone to live right. And someone woke up and said, hey, preaching the moralism isn't working. It's time to take over the White House. It's time to get so-and-so elected. And then we are going to make, we're going to make them pay. We're, oh, celebrate your freedom now, but we're coming after your drag shows. We're coming after this. We're coming after that. We're going to get this band and we're going to say, oh, it's just... One was preaching moralism. The other one is simply trying to impose moralism. It's the same error. It's just bizarre to me that I have lived long enough to hear the conservative church that used to condemn the liberal church for its social gospel now preaching its own version of the social gospel. It is hilarious to me. At the other extreme from the social gospel's approach to the Sermon on the Mount are three attempts to reject it entirely and to concentrate on the so-called legitimate aspects of the church's proclamation. The first of these attempts has been found in a type of preaching that has identified an interest in the Sermon on the Mount with legalism. To this way of thinking, the Sermon on the Mount is essentially a carryover from the law of the Old Testament, although a better interpretation of it, and is opposed as such to the gospel of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ and to his atoning work on Calvary. According to this view, Christ appears in Matthew 5 through 7 solely, exclusively as a lawgiver, like Moses, and his laws are the laws of his kingdom. Of all the misunderstandings of the Sermon on the Mount that I've encountered, I believe that we should have least sympathy with this one. For it betrays, I believe, the most insensitive misunderstanding of Christ's teachings. It's true that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus Christ is pictured as a second Moses, but the point of the comparison lies mostly in the area of contrast. Six times in chapter 5, Jesus is quoted as saying, Ye 
have heard that it hath been said, then follows something, but I say unto you. And this implies his greater and independent authority. The chapter itself closes with a most unmosaic statement, devastating to all attempts to exalt human righteousness as a means of salvation. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father who is in heaven is perfect. This is not legalism. It's not the Old Testament law restated. It's a condemnation of all attempts to please God by legalism in order that the way might be cleared for a man to come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I think what he's saying here is that this is an attempt to basically say, this is the law restated, keep this law and you will live. And he's like, no, clearly, no, it's not. Now, I do believe this is law. I do believe it's law. I do believe it's in a sense, Jesus, he's, he's, he's giving the tr- deeper meaning of the law. It's almost like Jesus is explaining the deeper meaning of the law, that the law goes beyond just a mere external act to the an internal reality. And he does say, be ye perfect as your heavenly fathers and perfect, meaning that no one can do this. No one can keep it. So if someone preaches the, the sermon on the Mount as a law, which you keep in order to get saved. And I dare say, I think it's just as wrong to preach it as the standard by which you judge to see if you are saved, because the standard condemns anyone and everyone lost and saved. It shows us over and over. We cannot do this. Don't look to your actions to prove that you're saved. Look to the one who kept the Sermon on the Mount perfectly on your behalf and paid for your failure and inability to keep it. To receive a new life capable of that which he requires. To identify the Sermon on the Mount with legalism is to miss the entire flavor of what the Lord is saying. For Christ's ethics go beyond the law of Moses in order that we might be brought to the feet of the gospel. There's also an objection to the Sermon on the Mount that arises from the feeling that the standards set down are impossible and are therefore not to be taken seriously by Christians. One of my friends once explained her objection to the Sermon on the Mount like this. She said, The Sermon on the Mount teaches that if someone hits you on one cheek, you're to turn the other. But if you do that, they'll hit you on that cheek also, and you'll end up by getting a beating. It says that if a man sues you for your coat, you're to let him have your cloak also. But if you do that, you'll end up with nothing. The Sermon on the Mount is impossible to practice in a world such as ours. It is not to be taken seriously. Well, I must admit that The objection of my friend has some persuasive logic to it, because we do live in a world that often makes the ethic of Christ seem to be impossible as a practical matter. See, now, all right, I do believe it's impossible. That, to me, is the whole point. The minute you say it's possible, then, but here's what, this is what Christians love to do at the Sermon on the Mount. 
Not only is it possible, they don't, ex- but they always make a, they always say possible, but you can't do it perfectly, which to me doesn't mean it's possible because you would have to keep it perfectly for it to be possible. But okay, I, I digress. But what we always do is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus did not really, this is, I love hearing pastors preach the Sermon on the Mount and they're always like, no, no, no. He didn't mean that. No, no, no. You don't have to do it that way. No, he didn't mean it that way. No, he didn't mean it that way. No, he didn't mean it. We're always having to re, state what Jesus actually meant, because if we go with what he actually meant, it would be, well, I I can't do that, or I don't want to do that. Resist not evil, turn the other cheek, love your enemy. We're like, no, no. Okay. He only means that to this far, only this far. He only means it like, this is the line. Once that line is crossed, then boom, you can shoot them. Boom. You can fight back. Like what? It's only up to a certain point. Because we've got to give ourselves an out. Or maybe Jesus is giving an ethic that literally goes against everything inside of us. And we're all like, well, I'm done. I'm done. I think that's the point. That's what drives me to the gospel. Now you say, well, once you go to the gospel to get now in Christ, I obey the sermon. What does it mean practically? It means practically... This is the standard I pursue with a constant awareness that I'm never going to get anywhere close to the perfection it demands. I'm glad to note that this line of argument at least recognizes the terribly but wonderful high standards that are found there. But isn't it true that Christians are called precisely to an impossible standard of conduct? And isn't it true that the Holy Spirit has given to them precisely for this purpose? Oh boy! Now, please note. See, oh, this is where I this is where I have so many many problems. So, so Christians love to do this. Hey, you're given an impossible standard, but guess what? You've been given the Holy Spirit for that exact reason. In other words, because you've been given the Holy Spirit, then you can meet the impossible standard. Well, if I can meet the impossible standard, then by logic, perfection must be the standard that every Christian is held to. But no Christian ever accomplishes it. So it's like if the Holy Spirit was given so that I could meet the impossible standard, Well, then that means we can now meet the impossible standard. So all Christians must be held to the standard of perfection. And we should not only expect it, it should not only be possible, it should be probable because you have the Holy Spirit given to you. So please note, impossible standard, and we're given the power to keep the impossible standard. Not what I believe is the true gospel, which is impossible standard. We've been given the imputed righteousness of Christ, which kept the impossible standard on our behalf. To me, the answer of the impossible standard is not the Holy Spirit. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ. Moreover, to reject the Sermon on the Mount as this involves, is also to take an unjustifiably uh, high-handed approach to the Bible. The error of my friend, and I must say also the error of many Christians who hold this and similar views, is actually the error of liberalism, which feels that liberty to accept 
one part of Scripture while it rejects another. Neither entirely subject themselves to the Bible. The only difference is that liberalism holds to the ethic, or part of it, while rejecting the gospel, whereas this type of conservatism holds to the gospel while rejecting the ethic. If the Bible says that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine, and reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. See, but what I get so tired of is I, I don't even agree with that because I've seen conservatives who preach the gospel. They don't reject the ethic. They claim the ethic is there, but they change the ethic. Well, I mean, Jesus didn't really mean, you know, you, you can't resist all evil. Jesus didn't clearly mean always turn the other cheek. Clearly, Jesus didn't mean that love your enemy means to let them do whatever. We caught, I mean, I know Jesus seems to say this about marriage and divorce, but I, I don't think he really meant that. Like we go through over and over and over and we change everything. Oh, we still hold to the ethic, but I'm going to change the ethic as much as possible so that there's some possibility that I can keep it. But wait a minute, you don't need to change the ethic to keep it because you supposedly have the Holy Spirit, which is given to you for the very, for the very specific reason of letting you keep the impossible standard. So if liberals hold to the ethic but reject the gospel and conservatives hold to the gospel or hold to the ethic, however you are, the liberals hold to the ethic and reject the gospel, but conservatives hold to the ethic or hold to the gospel and hold to the ethic. However, he stated that the point is, is no, I think no one wants to ever, I think some people will acknowledge the ethic and go, well, we can't keep it and then not worry about it. But I think everyone has a tendency to change the ethic when it is necessary to rewrite it to change it. And because, I mean, as soon as you start preaching and people are like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. I don't think Jesus meant this pacifistic. No, 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 no. Don't tell me that I can't do this or I can't fight back in this. No, Jesus didn't mean it that way. And you go to the next thing. No, I don't think, no, Jesus didn't mean it that way. We're always trying to change it. This means the Sermon on the Mount too. Jesus must have had it in mind when he told his disciples, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, teaching them to do all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Now there are also several other reasons why it's impossible to reject the Sermon on the Mount and the grounds of its being impossible, but these objections also apply to a fourth misunderstanding of the Sermon that I want to consider just now. And I will hold up on them until we're talking about it also. The fourth misunderstanding of the Sermon on the Mount is the view of some forms of early dispensationalism, a movement of scriptural interpretation that had a tremendous influence in the first part of this century and has left an abiding influence upon many conservatives through the justified success of the popular Schofield Bible. According to this system of Bible interpretation, the Sermon on the Mount was an official proclamation by Jesus of the ethical principles on which his messianic kingdom would be founded. And this kingdom was identified with the years following Christ's second coming. 
Okay, now I was taught this system in one of the schools I went to. They basically took the Sermon on the Mountain like, okay, we this is impossible. Nobody's going to keep this. And this is the ethics that will be in place during the millennial reign of Christ. This is basically giving the law back to the Jews. And then the Jews, when they are saved and regathered, because the new covenant, this is the argument, in the new covenant, there is a promise that I'm going to remove your your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and everyone will obey God. That's the language sometimes given about the new covenant, right? You can read that in the Old Testament, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. You look at some of those passages and it seems to imply everyone's going to obey God. God. Everyone's going to get a new heart. Ever the old heart's going to be gone. Now some people say no that's that's for us as Christians. Well, that would seem to imply we would we no longer have a sinful nature, which doesn't seem to work, right? That doesn't seem to work. So then others are like no 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 no, that's for that that's that those dis, those Covenant promises are specifically given to Israel and that will happen when all Israel is saved, that will be in the millennial kingdom. They will be given a new heart and they will obey God. They will. All right. So, so then they say, well, then the Sermon on the Mount is for them. It's for them for that thousand years. Now, other people like that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, but I understand why people would reject it. But at the same time, it's at least an acknowledgement going, well, I don't, there's nobody keeping this now. Right. So this is what they do. Instead of looking for, say, what I believe is a proper law gospel understanding of the Sermon on the Mount, they're like, well, no one can keep it now. Is there anyone in the Bible described that possibly could keep it? Well, those are going to get a new heart and they're all going to obey God. That's talked about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Hmm. They're going to be able to keep it. Well, when will they keep it? Well, when they get the kingdom, when will they get the kingdom? Well, it wasn't obviously when they came back from Babylonian captivity. Israel still doesn't have the kingdom. And if we believe that's legit, a literal Israel, then they're going to do it in the they're going to do it in the millennial kingdom. So then we'll just take this section and say this is the law for the millennial kingdom. I know not a lot of people agree with that, but I at least understand that, that I appreciate them going. Look at this. There's just no way. There's what. There's no way. There's no way we can keep it. Now, I believe that whole point is, you're right, you can't keep it. And that drives you to the cross. But, all right. In these three chapters, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks as Israel's king. Hence, the ethics of the sermon are to be applied not to our age, the age of the church, but to the future age of Christ's earthly rule. One of the early leaders of dispensationalism wrote, The Sermon on the Mount must be taken in its wholeness and in its literalness. This sermon cannot be taken in its plain import and applied to Christians universally. It has been tried in spots, but it has always been like planting a beautiful flower in stony ground or in a dry and withering atmosphere. In the same way, the old Schofield Bible says, For these reasons... The Sermon on the Mount in its primary application gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. Now let me make one thing clear. And I agree that when you try to apply it practically to Christians, it it never seems to work. 
it never seems to work. Christians fail, 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 fail. But here, here's like, here's what I'm talking about. Jeremiah 31, 31. Let me just read it to you. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, if that's literal Israel, literal Judah, that's not, you don't turn that into spiritual Israel, spiritual Judah. You don't turn that into the church. Then this is a covenant that's going to be made with them. Now, look at what goes, look, goes with this covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers and the days that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Clearly, that's not the church. That's literal Israel which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the, the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. Basically, like, hey, you're not going to need to teach anybody because God's law is going to be on their hearts. They're all going to know God. And I think other passages would give more of an implication of they're going to obey it. Well, when is that going to happen? What law would that be? Well, the argument from a dispensational standpoint is that's Matthew 5 through 7. And they'll keep it during the millennial kingdom. In the meantime, we're going to fall short. So you could argue in the meantime, it's there to condemn us, to drive us to Christ, but its future ramification will be for Israel during the millennial reign. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I, I do admire this. Hey, no, 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 no. There's no changing it. We take it literally and you can't keep it. And 2000 years of church history shows no one has. I do admire that part of it. I have no quarrel with some types of dispensationalism. If you find it helpful in your own study of the Bible to divide biblical history into periods in which God seems to have been particularly interested in demonstrating certain truths, such as the inability of man to govern himself by conscience, uh, human government, law, or anything else, then go ahead. I am for any system that actually helps you to read and to assimilate the Bible. I'm delighted to say that the Schofield Bible was the greatest influence upon my own early study of the Scriptures. Moreover, I want to stress that I have the deepest respect for these gifted teachers. They were deeply spiritual men, and they were steeped in the Bible far more, for instance, than most Bible teachers today, myself included. All this is true, and yet I'm convinced that in its approach to the Sermon on the Mount, the leaders of dispensationalism were just wrong. And it's no discredit to them to say it. There never has been a system of Bible interpretation that's been right in every point, and the early leaders of dispensationalism would have been the first to admit their own fallibility. Now, why was this view wrong? I believe we must acknowledge that this view of the Sermon on the Mount was wrong for at least three reasons. First, it is entirely without proof from the Scriptures. The dispensationalists said that the ethics of these chapters are reserved exclusively for Christ's coming messianic kingdom, but surely this is nowhere to be found in Christ's teaching. 
In fact, the reverse is true. Rather than indicating that the present import of his words might be postponed, Christ actually emphasized their lasting validity. The sermon is filled with present imperatives. Rejoice, swear not, go, give, take heed. Now, I completely agree with him at this point. That's why I would argue if you're going to kind of go with a dispensational kind of view, you have to, you have to modify it, right? It would be like, it's current, the current purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us our inability and drive us to Christ. It's prophetic purpose is to serve as the law for restored Israel when they come into the millennial kingdom. That like that's you have to give it a dual purpose. You'd have to give it a dual purpose. I'm not saying it works. I just know Jeremiah 31 describes a people that I don't believe currently exists because I don't believe the law of God is written on our hearts in this special way and that nobody needs to be taught and that basically we can obey it. I know it's just not the case. I believe we still have a sinful deprived heart. I, I believe that is still true today. So, because if we, if we get a new heart, then if we've got a brand new heart, either then you have to have, you have to go with this weird idea. We have a new heart, but an old nature. And so the nature and the heart are fighting each other. I guess maybe you could go with that kind of idea, but then which is greater, the heart or the nature? Can the heart override the nature? Can the nature override the heart? Like, so what is our ability? Because typically Christians preach like we have this new ability and they sometimes will quote the new covenant language, but clearly we don't seem to have that ability. Well, who's going to have that ability? It has to be Israel because that's who it's promised. Like you, you, there's lots of ramifications to this. So I, I do agree with him that the way the sermon is written, I think the implication is do this, do this. I do agree. And I do believe that that's why we read it to see that we can't. And then we are driven to the foot of the cross. Jesus said, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And I believe Christ fulfilled it all. Now, now one jot or tittle will pass until it's fulfilled, and Christ fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law. He, he, he fulfilled it all. Our Lord nowhere indicated that his words were to be disregarded. Second, it's apparent from any careful study of the Sermon on the Mount that it's precisely a world such as ours that Christ had in view when he spoke the words of the Sermon. According to the dispensationalists, the words should be applied to an age in which the Lord's earthly rule is established and which Justice is enforced and righteousness is required. But if this is so, what could be the possible meaning of a verse such as Matthew 5.44? But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them who despitefully use you and persecute you. In the kingdom age, no one will have liberty to practice these things, to persecute others or to use them despitefully. And a statement like this would be meaningless. I don't know about that because we often say that Christ will rule during the millennial kingdom with a rod of iron. So there's going to be those doing wrong. And what happens at the end of the thousand years? Isn't there a full-blown rebellion that occurs at the end of the thousand years? 
So I, 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 I don't know. I don't like I. Uh, there, there's okay, but I'm I'm willing to listen to that. I, again, I don't know. I don't think the dispensational view is perfect in any way, shape, or form. I, I I'm not here trying to completely defend the the dispensational one. I'm just trying to offer some. Well, well, wait a minute. Look, the other the other ones have clear problems too. So here we go. No, the world of the Sermon on the Mount is a real and sinful world, a world of. Tax collectors, unjust officials, hypocrites, thieves, the weak, the poor, and false prophets. And it's a statement of how those who were to be born again by faith in Christ are to live in spite of them. The third, and in some ways the most significant objection to this error of some forms of dispensationalism, is the Interesting fact that even the dispensationalists could not be entirely consistent in this interpretation of the gospel. It's a great tribute to their own walk with the Lord that in many instances, their spiritual sensitivity to what the Sermon on the Mount has to say actually won out over their doctrinal theory. Thus, the great expositor Dr. Arno C. Gabeline wrote in his commentary on Matthew, that while the Sermon on the Mount should be assigned to the Messianic age, this fact never excludes application to us who are his heavenly people, members of his body, who will share the heavenly throne in the heavenly Jerusalem with him. I'm pleased to see that the new Schofield Bible, while keeping the general scheme of dispensationalism in its valuable notes, nevertheless omits the previous statement about the sermons being neither the privilege nor the duty of the church, and says instead, although the law as expressed in the Sermon on the Mount cannot save sinners, and the redeemed of the present age are not under law, nevertheless, both the Mosaic law and the Sermon on the Mount are a part of Holy Scripture, which is inspired by God and therefore profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for the redeemed of all ages. Now, I believe that you will have entirely missed the point of what I've been saying here if you've not realized that all of my arguments against the misunderstandings and misinterpretations of these three chapters in Matthew have also been designed to answer the question, why should we study it? For, of course, That is what we're concerned with in this first introductory study. Why should we study the Sermon on the Mount? There are at least four reasons. First, the Sermon on the Mount shows us the absolute necessity of the new birth. That is just so weird to me. Why would you say that the Sermon on the Mount shows the absolute necessity of the new birth? The Sermon on the Mount shows the absolute necessity of an alien righteousness. It absolutely shows the necessary and the, the doctrine of imputation. We need the uh, righteousness of Christ imputed to our account. Like it would, like he's, he wants to go, the Sermon on the Mount shows us that we need the new birth because he wants to, we've, he wants to find the source of the power in order to keep it. Where I'm saying, no, 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 the Sermon on the Mount doesn't try to get me to find the power to keep it. The Sermon on the Mount points me to the one who kept it on my behalf. 
Show me a man who claims that he is living up to the standards of the Sermon on the Mount, and I will show you a man who either has never read it, does not understand what it is teaching, or is lying. The Sermon on the Mount does not encourage righteousness in man apart from Christ. It condemns him for falling short of God's righteousness. Okay, now I do, I do agree with this. Now, maybe he's not going to go with being born again as the source of the power. Maybe he's going to say being born again because it pr- provides the righteousness that is imputed. It's just, I would not say this shows us the necessity of the new birth. I would say this would show us the necessity of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to us. Let's see, though, maybe he's going to explain it that way. And it drives him in desperation to the cross. Paul says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. If that's true of the Old Testament law, which was largely external, then how much more is it true of this sermon? The Sermon on the Mount calls for a pure righteousness that flows from a regenerated heart. Second, Oh, no, no, no. See, he just, so now what he's saying is the Sermon on the Mount calls for a righteousness that only a regenerate heart can accomplish, meaning that you can keep the Sermon on the Mount if you're a regenerate. So regeneration is the key to keeping the Sermon on the Mount. See, he did not drive us. He says, he says that the Sermon on the Mount requires a pure righteousness that only a regenerate heart basically can produce. That, that is looking, that's more of a Roman Catholic idea of pointing to an infused righteousness. No, the Sermon on the Mount calls for a pure righteousness, which we cannot produce with an unregenerate or a regenerate heart. The only thing that can provide the righteousness that is demanded in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus Christ who preached it and who kept it. The Sermon on the Mount should be studied because, like all Scripture, it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. This should happen even in a literary or historical study, for it's impossible to study any document well. Even more important, however, is the fact that it is also true spiritually. We shall see in future studies enter into the deep of these chapters Okay, I don't know what's happening there. That's acting really weird. That that sound scared me to death. I don't know what that is. There's something on their recording. I'll try to play a little bit more. We're almost at the end anyway, but I'm just baffled up to this point that he's he's done um, almost 30 minutes on the Sermon on the Mount and not once pointed us to imputed righteousness. He literally pointed us to righteousness that flows out of a regenerate heart, meaning the righteousness you do. That to me is startling, frightening, and once again goes against everything that I that we should know about. We are justified by an imputed righteousness. It's like sometimes I think the Protestant Reformation just, I don't know what happened to the Protestant Reformation. I, it's like we've completely forgot that it ever occurred. Luther's it just that we are declared righteous by an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness, which is imputed to us. We are still sinners. Your you as a Christian, your heart will never produce the righteousness that the, the Sermon on the Mount demands. It will never come close. All right, let's see if this audio is 
gets better if it's messed up. Here we go. ...without realizing that in pleasure they bring us into the deepest possible contact with the person of our Lord. ...picture of the Sermon on the Mount is the Sermon on the Mount. And we are constantly brought into the most... Third, we should Sermon on the Mount because it indicates the way to blessing for Christians. Not in accordance with the these principles. Okay, I don't know why the audio is so messed up. I don't know why. But so his third thing is we have to study it because it's the way to be blessed. Now, once again, this, because what you're going to say is the way to blessing is obedience. If you obey the law, this is just going back to basically Deuteronomy 28. Hey, if you keep the law, you get the blessings. And if you don't, you get the curse. The whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is we can't do it. So how do we get the blessings? Bless. Let me, let me just read it to you. Let me just read it to you. Here we go. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. The blessings that come from the Sermon on the Mount are ours because we are in Christ and he kept it on our behalf. Oh, okay. Let's see. Let's see if we can at least try to get to the end of this. Find happiness. For it is the poor, not the haughty, the meek, not the proud, the merciful, not the cruel, the haters, not the taters. I don't know what is happening there. I'm trying to get to the fourth point. I want to get to the fourth point and see if we can make it out. So just bear with me. This is not me. This is something going on with with uh, with the audio. I don't know what, what happened here. Let's see if we can uh, get to the end of this. By God. Finally. We stand as Christians because it shows us to plead our Heavenly Father. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever tried to by Bill? By... All right, we'll have to stop there. Uh, you may have to go look up the, the Bible Study Hour podcast. I think it's from May the 30th. And listen to the fourth point. I don't know what the fourth point is. With, uh, uh, something we have, I guess he's saying this causes us to plead with God to give us, I guess, the ability to do so. It just, it just seems at no point in this message does he point us to the imputed righteousness of Christ. That is, I, that is the most astonishing, dumbfounding confusing thing about what we just heard. Anytime you preach the Sermon on the Mount, what you should tell everyone is, listen, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount and you are going to be absolutely devastated by it. You're going to feel embarrassed. You're going to feel shame. You're going to feel guilt. You're going to be confused. You're going to be confounded. You're going to be discouraged. You're going to be depressed. You're going to feel hopeless. You're going to feel helpless. And that's a good thing because it will make you realize you can't do it and it's going to make you run to the only one who ever could and that was Jesus Christ. He preached it, he kept it, and only in him will you ever obey it. And that obedience will be your positional obedience, not your practical obedience, because you will always fall short. Should we strive for it? Yes. Should we pursue it? Yes. Should we try to help one another keep it? Yes. Are we ever going to get close? No. There we have it. I don't know why that audio was messing up. I am going to uh, hang on. I'm going to play our theme really quick just to see, is it all the audio messed up right now? Let's see here. Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. 
All right, no, it's not. It's not us. It's it, it's not uh, our audio. That's so that worked out perfectly. So I don't know what's going on, but I apologize for that. That's very frustrating. But hopefully, we were able to get close to the end of that, and this will still serve to be beneficial. The Sermon on the Mount considered the greatest sermon, but what we do know is it's one of the most greatly misunderstood sermons ever preached. Its greatness is because of the greatness of the misunderstanding and that there have been countless systems trying to explain what to do with it. My approach is this. Read the Sermon on the Mount. One verse tells you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You cannot do that. Immediately, because of that reality, whether saved or unsaved, you cannot keep it, means you have to then come to a system that will actually account for the fact that you will never keep it. Love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be perfect. None of You're not going to do any of those things. So then what do we do? It is law that condemns, just like the Old Testament was law that condemns. This calls for an obedience that goes beyond the external to the internal. This will destroy you and condemn you. Your only hope is in Christ. Christ kept it. This drives you to Christ, in Christ, his imputed righteousness. The righteousness of him keeping this law is imputed to you. So in Christ, you've obeyed the sermon on the law and you get all the blessings that come from it. In practice, you fall short of it day in and day out, which should constantly remind you you need Christ and his mercy and his forgiveness, but constantly remind you that you are trying to at least pursue that standard. There you have it. You can email me your disagreements. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I don't know why that audio got so messed up, but it did. So, well, we'll have to figure out why at a later time. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Saturday. Now, I'm going to get back to my sermon prep. Well, we just took 70 minutes listening to that. I thought it was going to be short. Yeah, I, I should have figured. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great Saturday. God bless.